Welcome to the Living with Fire podcast, where we share stories and resources to help you live more safely with wildfire. I'm Megan Kay, your host and outreach coordinator for the Living with Fire program, and joined today by my boss, Jamie Rice Gomes. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Megan. And our student worker, content creator, Jordan Buxton. Hello. Jordan is joining us today. He was part of the interview and had some great questions, so I wanted to get his take on the interview as well. Um, this episode, we sat down with um, August Iserhagen, who's the deputy chief of Wildland Fuels at the Truckee Meadows Fire and Rescue. Um, it was a great interview. He talked all about wildland firefighting from his perspective and uh gave us a lot to think about when it comes to the job of wildland firefighting and how we interla- interact with wildland firefighters and what we as residents and homeowners can do to make their job a little easier and keep them safe. So let's, I kind of wanted to hear you guys' thoughts on the interview and let's start with whoever wants to go first. <laughs> Jamie? Okay, I thought it was a great interview. Um, I like how he gave some inside perspectives to uh, wildland firefighting. Um, most of the public doesn't realize some of this stuff. So pretty fascinating. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that um, Augie did a really good, or August. He goes by Augie. Um, I think that he gave a really good perspective on not only the seasonal wildland firefighter perspective of, you know, he, he only fights fires, but the career wildland perspective um as someone who worked through the ranks and um you know has fought in fires for the almost the last two decades i think that he had unique insights especially as someone who as he kind of put it would rather still be you know in the pits fighting with the guys well i think that yeah that's definitely um where the action is but he's also probably like he also mentioned it's nice for him to have spend time with his family because yeah. that's one of the the aspects of being a wildland firefighter is there's adventure, but you never really know where you're going to go and for how long you're going to be there. Um, yeah, I I think that I'm, I was really excited we got to sit down with him. Hopefully we get to talk with more firefighters in the future. Um, I just... I just think that their experience fighting fire in the wildland urban interface, like residents and homeowners and just people who live with fire on a daily basis can learn a lot from it. And um, also their stories are just interesting and engaging. So I'm always down to hear to hear them, you know. I think it's important that we thank wildland firefighters for what they do. Um, it's a big job and it's not easy. And they're doing a lot, so thank I thought you. it was interesting, actually, how he brought that up. How he talked how, about how in other areas, you know, he does. I he kind of brought up why it is like this, but how wildland firefighters are shown gratitude in a greater way, or in a different way, I guess, than around northern Nevada. Right? How, like, he was talking about fires in Southern California and how you know, residents drop off supplies and goodies and, you know, food and, you know, loads of other things to fire stations when firefighters from other places are there. And I just thought that was kind of interesting considering how much fire we deal with here that we don't necessarily have a a greater community response in showing gratitude. 
Me too. Um, I wonder if it has to do with the fact that we always have wildfires here. And so we've kind of become immune to it. Kind of jaded. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, whereas if in another area, if they don't experience wildland firefighters or wildland fires every year, um, maybe it's just, it's new. And I don't know. I mean, it's sad, but interesting. Last night I drove by a lot in downtown and there's a bunch of Cal Fire rigs out there right now. And I was actually thinking about how, I wonder if there's a way I should be showing them gratitude. I mean, these guys aren't even from here, and you know their rigs are parked here, getting ready. Yeah, if folks want to show gratitude, Augie said that he mentioned in the interview it always is good for morale when they can see, you know, like signs saying "thank you, firefighters." Maybe that will give them a little bit more motivation. You know, not that they need it; they're they're very highly motivated individuals, but you know, just kind of make them feel good, make their day a little bit. I saw a lot of those signs last at the end of last season driving through NorCal. You'd pass through the little the little towns, the ones that, if the fire got there, they'd definitely be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the highway was highway was just lined with thank yeah. you firefighters and yeah. There you go, Jordan. Thanks for saving our homes, but it'd be Here cool to sign. it would be cool to see that yeah. in in northern Nevada a little more. I will say, if you're when I was firefighting, like it didn't happen to me that like personally but people did bring stuff down to fire camp sometimes and it was nice you know like if they brought like baked goods or maybe they paid for if it was like a smaller fire obviously if it's a big fire yeah, I, <laughs> I, I don't think people have that much money but there are a few times yeah where people would just like pay for us to to have some treats you know yeah. which which was really um and when i say folks i mean it's usually like a local business owner mm. who was kind of if one of the wealthy local business owners wants to cater an entire fire camp, yeah. it would be much appreciated. Well, don't cater the camp, but get us some cookies, you know. Um, but the I think that there are some cool organizations that if people want... I mean, I'm not an expert, but I do know there's one that I saw on Facebook called Ashley's Toy Closet. And they collect donations for... Um, families that have been affected by wildfire, maybe lost properties, homes, and they collect toys to give to kids. So there definitely are these sort of more grassroots mutual aid uh, efforts by just sort of regular people trying to help out. So they are there if you find them. Anyway, I think that we all really enjoyed talking to Augie and get to getting to pick his brain about wildland firefighting. And I hope you guys enjoy the interview. My name's August Eisenhagen. I'm a division chief with Truckee Meadows Fire Protection District. I oversee the wildfire and fuels program there. Can you explain the radio in the background real quick? Oh, yep. I apologize. You can keep it uh, on. I actually like it. <laughs> the radio is going in the background. We're in red flag today, so I'm just listening. And a red flag warning for our audience who doesn't already know means that there's uh, potential for extreme fire behavior today because of... Low temperatures, high winds, and what else? High winds and low RH is the, and low the big one today. Yeah. So can you kind of give us an overview of what you do as a division chief at Truckee Meadows? Okay. Um, so Truckee Meadows started, we've always had a wildland component. It's one of our main uh, areas of emergency response. Um, and we've dabbled in fuels management here and there throughout the years. 
about a year and a half ago uh, in partnership primarily with Envy Energy in the state of Nevada, Division of Forestry. Um, there was funding to be more proactive about the fuels management. Truckee Meadows created uh, my position to have a division chief. Division means you focus on a primary area. Uh, to have a division chief focused on wildland fire and fuels management in Truckee Meadows jurisdiction. Other divisions within TM, there's an EMS division for emergency medical services. There's an operations division for, it oversees the line staff in the stations. And then there's a logistics training division that handles all the logistical needs and training. And then for when we say Truckee Meadows, because I know you guys recently changed your name. It used to be Truckee Meadows Fire Protection District, but now it's Truckee Meadows just Fire and Rescue, right? Oh, correct, yes. And that's just in Washoe County. Yep, so Truckee Meadows is responsible for emergency response in unincorporated Washoe County. So Reno has their own fire department. Sparks has their own. North Lake Tahoe out of Incline has their own. Um, and then our jurisdiction goes up to Township 22, which is pretty much Palomino Valley, like that northern boundary. However, through agreements with the county, we also take on their fire suppression north of that. So uh, essentially goes to the Oregon border to the north. Um, they have a small department outside of Gerlach that is also run currently by Truckee Meadows. That's kind of changing. And then there's a department outside of Pyramid Lake. And so you're in charge of the fuels crews, but also those are the wildland firefighting crews? Well, so the, the our newest addition in the fuels program, their primary nine to five job is, or seven to five job, is fuels management, right? Um, and that's what they're doing 52 weeks out of the year, their year round. When there is a fire, they're all... Their, their trade, that what they've come up through, is wildland fire. So they're fully qualified on that. When they're on project, they're running out of a Type 5 engine, which is an actual fire truck with water and hose and tools. But it's like, but it looks like a truck, right? Exactly. So it's not, it doesn't look like a typical fire engine. It's like a... It's like a big lifted pickup truck um, on juice. And so that's what they're on project. That's what they're in on project doing fuels management. Mm -hmm. Then when there is a fire, then they respond to the fire. Um, also all of Truckee Meadows stations that we already have are fully staffed with wildland apparatus and all of the staff are cross, cross trained for wildland. So the new crews are, that's their focus is wildland and fuels, but all of the Truckee Meadows crews are trained and capable in it. How did you get the job and what is your career in wildland firefighter as a wildland firefighter? Uh, I took a kind of a wandering approach to get here. <laughs> Um, I've been doing fire and natural resource management for about 20 years. I started in high school as a seasonal park ranger for a couple of years. I knew I wanted to do something outside. And, and I didn't even know that wilderness. seasonal park ranger. Yeah, Maybe. for Washoe County. <laughs> Someday I'll be a seasonal park <laughs> <laughs> So I did that for a couple of years, um, and I do trainings with the Forest Service in the summer just to kind of learn what was out there. I still didn't think I'd do fire. Apologize for the radio. Um, I still didn't think I wanted to do fire. I wanted to go more like wildlife, um, but started going to UNR um, and then to help pay for school. I got a job as a wildland, a seasonal wildland guy with Nevada Division of Forestry. Did a couple years of volunteering, all risk in there also. Um, all risk means structure fires, emergency medical um, services, that type of stuff. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't really my the all risk side yeah. you enjoyed, but wasn't your... It wasn't... I didn't have the passion for it like the wildland. So I focused on the wildland. I was a seasonal doing that um, for six or seven years. Then I had 
my wife and I had our first child and I got laid off and uh, I, w I, w I was happy being a seasonal. I thought I could do that forever. But then we had that first winter without health insurance and a brand new baby at home. And so it was time, <laughs> time to grow up. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's something that uh, I want to come back to. So let's, because I, I want you to describe what that seasonality of a okay. wildland firefighter looks okay. like. But I didn't mean to interrupt you. So you, got, right. you guys had a baby. Had a baby. It was time to grow up. Um, so I got a job running inmate crews with the Nevada Division of Forestry. Similar function. So 52 weeks out of the year, those crews are going out doing project work, fuels management, forest health, that type of stuff. Um, and then during fire season, those, those inmates are cross-trained to, yeah. to respond to fires. So I did that for a few years. Um, when I was a seasonal, I bounced around a little bit. I did a few years on engines. I did a few years on hell attack, which is basically uh, hand crew on the ground firefighters that get inserted by helicopter into remote areas. Very cool, yeah. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> then I went back to engines for a couple of years. Then I became the crew boss for a while. Um, then one year, hell attack was short-staffed. Uh, and I was brought into the chief's office and he asked, you know, you've been running a good crew. How'd you like to go to Hell Attack? So a fair amount of folks wanted that experience. I said, no, thanks. I like running crew. Mm -hmm. And they pretty much said, too bad. You're the only one with experience. <laughs> You're going. Uh, so I ended up back at Hell Attack. Was there for a few years. So as a crew boss, I was year round. Um, and I'd... So when you say crew boss, you mean with the, the inmate crews? Both. So... Both. I did just inmate crews for a little bit, a couple of years. And then when I ended up back at Hell Attack, I'd go to Hell Attack for the spring, summer, and fall, and then come back to running inmates in the winter and did that for a few cycles. Uh, eventually, they created a battalion chief position over Hell Attack because that's why they were always having to borrow folks as they didn't have any exclusive positions there. Um, I got that position, and then my boss there... Um, pretty much required. He couldn't, but he required <laughs> me to go back to school to finish my degree. Uh, degree in, in what? Forest management and ecology at UNR. So um, went back to school, finished that. And then after four or five years of being the battalion chief there, uh, the camp program manager position opened with Nevada Division of Forestry. And that oversees the whole inmate program. Um, about 700 personnel across, what, 10 or 11 facilities across the state. So I took that job. Um, the degree was key for that, obviously moving into those upper management positions. I was there for about a year and a half. I was uh, always interested in climbing into upper management with Nevada Division of Forestry. Thought that's where I would stay. But then Truckee Meadows created this position and... You jump ship. Everything lined <laughs> up and... and here I am, so how happy long, as a clam. How long have you been with Trucking Meadows? 16 months. 16 months? Yeah, and with NDF for about 18 years before that. What's the best part of being a wildland firefighter, in your opinion? The best, <laughs> the best parts, right? Um, and, and since I've, I've moved into that program manager position at NDF and now here with Trucking Meadows, I'm less operational. And what operational means for those folks out there is less in the field boots on the ground swinging a tool which kind of sucks because that's where that's the fun that's where the fun is right um my favorite parts about it were number one the adventure right you never know um what's going to happen today when you show up to work 
there's a little bit of that adrenaline and, like I said, sense of adventure. I like traveling. Um, another exciting piece about wildland fires, you, on top of not knowing what's going to happen today, you don't know where you're going to end up today. And so I've been on fires all over the western United States, and that's an exciting piece. You see a lot of areas that most people wouldn't see, right? Because you're not going to the tourist attraction. You're going. Well, sometimes you end up there too, but um, <laughs> you're, that's not the point, right? You, so you end up in the middle of nowhere um, and see some cool sights. And then the last piece, the most important piece to me through the years has been the camaraderie. Um, you know, I had I had close friends in high school. I had close friends in college. Um, but by far... My closest friends in the world are are those that that I've fought fire with over the years. Why? I think it's I, I don't know. That's a complicated question. I think it's um, there's obviously a piece of it's not like morbidly dangerous, right? But there's an elevated risk, and sometimes you can end up in some sketchy situations, and that creates a bond. Um, another piece is ties to what Megan was talking about, kind of the cyclical nature of it, and the difficulties that go along with that, and and a lot of people maybe don't relate to that, right? But when you when you are in a season focused job and you're living with these people for six months out of the year, you just those bonds I don't know naturally come about, you know. And especially like on the helicopter, there's a heightened level of risk there, and that's like the true definition of adventure, right? You just launch and take off into the wild blue yonder and get dropped off on a mountaintop for four days <laughs> with your buddies, you know, and I think you'd be hard pressed not to have those relationships in those scenarios. Yeah. And there's no, uh, there's no escape. Right. Even if you wanted to. Right. Um, but the, yeah, I did, uh, just for full disclosure, I have some wildland fire experience. I was on, I actually was on an, I wasn't on ever on an engine with you, but I did mm -hmm. serve as a, I was a seasonal at NDF for two seasons and then on a type two hand crew in incline, uh, called the slide mountain hand crew, which is part of North Lake Tahoe fire protection district for mm -hmm. two seasons. And then I was there for almost three seasons, but I got injured at the beginning of my third season and decided not to come back. I decided to go to college, but, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I can definitely relate to that seasonality because I did that for five years, basically, of just... And it was hard to break out of. Mm -hmm. Like, when you transition out of it, like, it was really hard for me to stay at a job for longer than a year. Right. Because I was just like, I, I'm getting antsy. Like, right. when is it going to switch? I yep. don't... It's like, is it really just this? Yep. Forever? Yeah. And that, that, <laughs> is, that is difficult. It becomes cyclical, right? Yeah. Your life is based on the seasons, and you start to expect, like... Mm -hmm. just get to november yeah but definitely like is i didn't uh keep in touch with like the guys in my crew but it's i definitely know a lot about them mm -hmm. at least at that moment in time and they know a lot about me right you know so it's like that will that will never change yep. um <laughs> but yeah those the bonds are definitely yep pretty crazy conversely what do you think is the toughest part of being a wildland firefighter? Um, there are several. I mean, some of it's kind of the stuff we're already talking about. The hardest part when you first start, <laughs> there's a financial component, right? Because it's pretty much impossible to get your foot in the door without some kind of seasonal experience. So to do that, you have to willingly take a job sometimes for two, three, my case, six, seven. I know other guys that they go 10, 15 years as a seasonal. And that 
financially is difficult, right? It's feast or famine. You're getting, you're working all summer long and you're doing pretty well. And then in the winter, you're out of a job, right? And it depends which agency you work for, whether you get benefits during that laid off time period or not. But the financial, maintaining financial health, especially when you first start is one. Um, Another one is family life, right? I'm married. I have four kids. And that has always been a struggle, especially when they're little. Is it, We were talking about it earlier, right? Mm-hmm. You leave in the morning, you give everybody a kiss. You think you're coming back that night, but who knows? Hmm. You end yeah. up in Wyoming or Idaho or whatever that scenario is. And a significant other can, you know, they're usually aware of that possibility, but the little ones, they can't. They can't process that the same way. So that one's hard. Um, And then what else? I would say tying back to those close relationships is it's a small group, right? And people outside those relationships don't, can't relate and don't have that perspective. Mm -hmm. Like even my own parents barely understand anything about (laughs) what I've done in my career. Because it's just, it's a, it's, it's alien to most people. Well, even my dad, who's a Reno firefighter, right. his whole career retired as a Reno firefighter. He didn't really have much wildland fire mm-hmm. experience. Like he did go on some wildland fires, obviously, but never right. for as long as I did. Yep. So he even trying to explain it to him, like, I, like he did not relate. Right. <laughs> so the only people who were honestly relate are other wildland firefighters, right. which I do have a few friends who were like on hotshot crews mm-hmm. and helitech crews that just are in my circle of friends and we always end up talking about it. Like whenever we're at, we're at a, at a party or something, even though we're no longer doing mm-hmm. it, we're always just like relate back to yeah. it or are following the issues related to wildland firefighters in the news and kind of trying to educate people about it. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I think those are, those are kind of the hard parts. What a lot of people would envision is the difficult pieces, and some people think it is. I, I've never had an issue with, you know, in terms of, like, the physical element or sleeping in the dirt or eating MREs or not having ice for your water, right, those type of things. Um, I've always kind of enjoyed that. So, <laughs> yeah, different than what most people would think, I would guess. Yeah, if, that's, if those are the difficult parts of the job, then you probably shouldn't be in the job because right. that's just the job. Right. wildfire firefighters have a lot to do make it easier for firefighters to defend your home create defensible space now defensible space is an area between a house and an oncoming wildfire where the vegetation has been managed to reduce the wildfire threat proper defensible space doesn't mean removing all vegetation though by following the lean clean and green rule you can keep your property safe while preserving its natural beauty Learn more about Defensible Space in our guide, Fire Adapted Communities, The Next Step in Wildfire Preparedness. You can find the guide in the resources section of our website at livingwithfire.com. We were talking about the pros and cons of wildland firefighting mm-hmm. and the sort of effects that it can have on your, your personal life. I wanted to circle back to a conversation we were having off mic earlier about like mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were talking, you were talking about how, well, first of all, just kind of unpack sort of some of the maybe challenges that are uh, common with wildland firefighters, like mental health wise. And then what you, you mentioned that Trucky Meadows is actually being proactive and dealing yep. with it. So I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Um, I think 
mental health in terms of the wildland community, I think it, obviously it's going to depend on the individual. Like if you're like me, I, I eventually fell into a rhythm like we were talking about where life is just kind of seasonal, right? Summertime was fire focused. Fall was winter focused. Winter, or excuse me, fall was um, uh, project focused. Winter was like hunting and relaxing time. Yeah. Spring was ramping back Getting up time, back right? Into you, shape yeah, time. you just kind of get into that life cycle and then it's the natural ebbs and flows, if you will. Um, I could see how that could be a, a mental health piece for a lot of people that aren't able to kind of roll with, with that dynamic. Um, the unknown is also another mental health piece. Um, I would say probably the biggest one ties back to the family element that we were talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Issue, like if it can create marital issues, um, the job, right? That same thing, being gone all summer long and not present. Um, how your kids take it, those types of things. As well as the stress from, like we talked about, the financial element when you first get started. Yeah. Um, all of those play into it. And we talked about it. Uh, again, I've never felt wildland fire was anything extraordinarily dangerous or extraordinarily um, impactful in terms of what you see. But obviously, same thing. Every person takes that differently. And sometimes you see um, death and you know, destruction and, and things that some people have a hard time coping with. Well, yeah. I mean, not everyone experiences an injury right. or them, either themselves or maybe on their crew. Mm -hmm. But it does happen, and it can definitely be traumatic. Right. You know, like if you see your your buddy get injured or, mm -hmm. um, you know, someone in our crew had like a grand mal seizure, had to be right. helitect out. That was a little intense. Mm -hmm. um, but the, yeah, just the, the anxiety and just the constant sort of anxiety, I yep. feel like could definitely contribute to some mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you do get exposed to some of those traumatic events, right? They're not mm -hmm. as often as, say, an all-risk firefighter who's going on medical calls and car accidents and those kind of things. Yeah. Um, or a police officer, you know, or somebody in the military. But it's still the, uh, the rate that those things happen is still elevated in the wildland world compared to everyday um, life. I've been, on, I've been around three or four, four aircraft accidents, right? Um, and I think almost in the wildland community, those might be, again, I'm not a psychologist. I, I would think those are have a more pronounced impact because they're not exposed to it all the time. And some of those coping mechanisms aren't yeah. there would be my guess again. Yeah. I mean, those are, Augie. but yeah, I can't even imagine being in the aviation, like right. all the stress that would go into just the daily operations of that. Yeah, and that can take a toll on your nervous system, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah, again, I think it depends on the individual. Like when you're first learning and you're first into it, it's a whole new world and everything yeah. can kill you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but then eventually that you just, you adapt and yeah, that becomes the day-to-day -day way of things. Yeah, but, but so Trekking Meadows, they, you guys hired a psychologist? So we have, I don't know his technical title, but yeah, he's a, a doctor um, and we give him... He's basically on contract with the district, and, and in return, he's available if we need him for a SISM, which is a crit critical incident stress management mm -hmm. um, discussion. Uh, it doesn't have to be that formal. As he's cruising around town, he'll stop in a fire station and, and touch base with, with the folks and 
if they want to engage or pull them aside, then they can do that. Not just about work stuff, just in general, how mm-hmm. they're doing. Um, if we have near misses or injuries, we bring him into the fold to check everybody's mental health there. And then he's also really active nationally in the wildland fire community. So all spring, he's cruising around the Western U.S., touching base with hotshot crews, uh, engine crews, federal government, state governments, and um, and same thing, doing a lot of preventative maintenance, he likes to call it, on the front end, giving tools on yeah. how to deal with some of those stressors. Um, so yeah, that's one element that, or that's one aspect that, that Truckee Meadows has. We also have um, some of our internal folks, uh, Battalion Chief Derek Reed, he was instrumental in starting the Nevada Peer Support Network. Cool. Um, and that was in conjunction with Dr. Steve also. Uh, and that was all focused on mental health of, it started off fairly limited, right, the fire community, uh, but that's expanded for to law enforcement, medical personnel, um, the military. And now... It was the Northern Nevada Peer Support Network. Now it's the Nevada Peer Support Network. So I don't know how many different agencies are participating in that. But uh, this spring they put on a two-day resiliency training mm-hmm. um, at the convention center that was solely focused on mental health of emergency responders. Yeah, I mean, it's such an important issue. And, I mean, just the, with the wildland firefighter, just with wildland firefighters in particular, um, you know, our wildland seasons in air quotes, you can't mm-hmm. see that, but I just did air quotes are <laughs> longer and longer. And, yeah. and so folks are out on the line, like actively fighting fire for prolonged periods of time mm-hmm. and getting exhausted. And so I, I, I just think it's anything, any sort of innovations yep. <laughs> in, and being proactive and giving folks tools, but also just, uh, checking in, right? You know, I I definitely was. Uh, I I was feel like I was pretty lucky. I had really good leadership that I mm-hmm. was always really touching base and checking in with stuff like that. I mean, there was I feel like you know, f- culture of fire crews. Like, there's also things that contribute to anxiety for sure. <laughs> that there's maybe a, uh, uh, could be <laughs> a stoic <laughs> that were maybe mentality. unnecessary, yeah. but um, for the most part. There was genuine like concern for everybody, so that was pretty nice. Um, I wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, uh, just things that you think that residents, homeowners, people in general should know about wildland firefighters. Like, what do you think that people should know about wildland firefighters? Whether that would it's in context of like during. Uh, a wild, wildland fire event or maybe just in general so that people kind of understand who these folks are that are fighting these fires, you know? Hmm. I mean, obviously everyone's different. Right. Like there's no, there's no stereotype. Right. Um, but the, you know, I just think, I think that people would like, I think it's an interesting job that people want to know about. Mm-hmm. And especially like if people, if, if, people are living in the urban interface and they wildland urban interface and they're experiencing wildfire, like they're going to come in contact with, with firefighters. Yep. So it'd be kind of interesting. It'd be kind of nice to know, like maybe we'll start with this. Like what's like some etiquette, some etiquette. Yeah. (laughs) Um, well, several times I've, I've experienced it through my whole career. Uh, especially, I don't know that it's centered obviously around, 
fire, but just working for in the public sector in general, right? You interact with a lot of opinions out there based, you know, regarding what you're doing, mm-hmm. right? Um, a lot of opinions and good ideas. Um, I've interacted with tons of public when I'm out on project or out on fires where you're getting that, you're getting those inputs on something that maybe they don't understand Mm -hmm. as well, right? But they still have the opinions. And obviously in this line of work, emotions are high, right? Whether it's a project and you're cutting out somebody's favorite tree, right? Or it's prescribed fire and somebody's worried about it escaping or you're in the actual fire environment, right? And they're worried about their house. And so I think the main piece of etiquette is would be to approach approach them as, you know, a trained professional. This is what they chose to do as their trade. Um, and show them that respect and in, in their in, in their expertise for what they know. Is there anything that maybe homeowners could know could do to maybe make wildland firefighters jobs easier? Yeah. Wildland firefighters um, jobs easier? Besides well, what you tied, just mentioned it about ties like, to the first question. Uh, and you know, living with fire talking about fuels management, defensible space, those, those pieces specifically is a piece of honoring or respecting what those guys do, um, would be to take some ownership in your own, your own position in life with your property, your home, that type of thing. Um, they are fathers, husbands, wives, mothers that are coming into these situations to try to help. And, um, having that ownership to do what you can uh, before that scenario happens, I think uh, isn't stressed enough, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because there is a bunch of work. This is the stuff you guys talk about all the time that can be done ahead of time to both make it safer and more productive while the wildland folks are in there. Yeah. Because we treat, as we train, um, we always beat it into everybody's heads that there's no bush worth dying for. There's no house worth dying for, right? Um, that's true to a degree, but if that were completely true, we'd just stop fighting fire all the way to get all together, right? Because that's the only way to guarantee it doesn't happen. So there is a piece of that. We also try to train folks not to get emotionally involved when there's homes and structures threatened and private property. We can say that all day long, but that is not accurate right yeah you don't no one wants someone's house to right. burn. you instantly become more invested in what you're doing when it's somebody's private property right? yeah and so having that ownership and making a difference to help before it's needed communities located in wildfire prone areas need to take extra measures to live safely there are many ways to prepare communities and properties for wildfire including creating and maintaining adequate defensible space and hardening homes to withstand wildfire. This could mean altering or replacing certain components of the home. Our Wildfire Home Retrofit Guide will help you better prepare your home and communities for wildfire. You can find the guide in the resources section of our website at livingwithfire.com. Something that I think is interesting that exists now, and feel free to com- comment on it, that didn't exist when I was wildland firefighting, um, which is also, that's a whole thing to unpack there too, is just the term wildland firefighter. Mm-hmm. Like often 
that's not actually that's the, true. the designation. It's usually like forestry technician mm-hmm. or just seasonal. Right. <laughs> um, but as it's understood, that's the job as you're a wildland firefighter. Right. Um, but when I was working on hand crew and on an engine, there wasn't a whole lot of social media. You know, Instagram mm-hmm. wasn't around. Facebook was there, but it wasn't that big. And, you know, there's always been this sort of impulse to share stories and to connect with other people who are doing the job. So, um, you know, my crew always did like a video right at the end of, at the end of the year, mm-hmm. which was like usually like really intense music right. and <laughs> just like highlights we, of all the stuff. Of, of, of the plane dumping. Yeah. Yep. We over used the forest. to do that. Do the same which thing. is awesome. But I that think they still make those. And then the up, up, uploaded to YouTube. And that was your way of kind of like putting it out there. Like this is what we did this season. But now there are lots of like Facebook groups mm-hmm. and Instagram accounts and YouTube influencers around Wildland Fire. So people can really kind of educate themselves and dig into the culture. Um, there's uh, one podcast that I listen to. It's called Anchor Point. It's Brand- Brandon was a wild ex wildland firefighter. You know, okay, he former wildland firefighter, and he he actually lives in Reno. Huh. Has a big audience, but. Um, yeah, his podcast is is huge, and it's I just love that there's this culture now where people can talk about it, mm-hmm. and um, there's an outlet to where they can like find like minded individual or people not like minded, but you know, people with the same experience. Right. Um, that didn't really exist when I was firefighting, so it was like you either you don't, the only way you could meet other wildland firefighters was like in camp. Right. right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So. I thought that was, I just think that's pretty cool. So feel free to comment, but I still want that anecdote and that heartwarming story. <laughs> I don't know if I have heartwarming. I, I have kind of in, an interesting story about helicopters. So just, sorry, this isn't, a, this podcast isn't about me. No, you're about, good. <laughs> but I'm always, I've always, uh, I never got to ride on a helicopter. And okay. it's one of the things that I regret. Or I can't regret it because it's nothing. It's not. It wasn't my choice. It's just one of the things that I'm kind of bummed that never happened. But the because part of the reason I wanted to be on the crew that I applied for was when I was at NDF. I got assigned to the water tender one mm-hmm. time, which is the it's an interesting gig. If you guys, if you if people listening have ever been on a water tender. I was on the water tender that day, which usually is no big deal. It's like you drive the water tender to project work or wherever Mm -hmm. you you just have to be on it in case it gets dispatched to a fire. Well, I got dispatched to a fire out in like Winnemucca with the other guy I was on the water tender with. And we ended up being on this fire for like two weeks or however long, a long time. And we were stuck (laughs) just like at the airport. And our whole job was to just like fill up the, the various the pumpkins for pump, the yeah the yep. pumpkins yeah so it's like we would just be going back and forth from the hydrant all day yep that's all we did and it was really boring in my opinion it's a very important <laughs> <laughs> it's a very important job right but um and I, and then this crew the, the crews kept getting flo- they were f- being flown in and out every day because they weren't like spiking out mm-hmm. on the on the fire they're just like we're getting a ride every day in the helicopter to and from the fire. And I was just like, oh, who, this is, 
I'm so jealous of this crew. And I found out who it was. It was a slide mount hand crew. And I was like, cool, I'm applying for that crew next year. Because <laughs> <laughs> in my mind, I didn't know anything. I was just like, wow, that crew flies on helicopters. Always. <laughs> and I never got to fly on a helicopter. The two, the two and a half seasons I was on there. But yeah, uh, got close. I One time we like taped up all our tools, had our manifest, every, everything ready, because you have to weigh everything. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's very, you know, it's a... It's an aircraft. <laughs> yep. In case you guys didn't know, helicopters and aircraft. <laughs> um, but we got very close, and we just never did it. So yeah. they decided that they would. They were fine with letting us hike the thirteen miles. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we did. But anyway, hey, I, I got a I got a question for Augie. Like, do you Augie? Do you have any stories of how like um, like the community has like rallied around like firefighters after a fire and and like made like baked goods or something like that? Um, yeah, um, I think it has a lot to do with culture and demographics of the community, right? I've been on tons of fires in Southern California and down there, emergency responders are kind of viewed in a different light than up here. Um, I don't know if that's political, um, leanings or what that is, but down there there's so many donations and baked goods and snacks and socks and baby powder that gets dropped off at the stations. Like it can't ever even be used by the firefighters. It just comes out of the woodwork. Up here, that's not as common. Um, again, it's I think it's just a demographic difference. But um, all of those big wooey fires, right, wildland urban interface fires, it's a heartwarming piece, right, is, is all the signs that you see, especially when it's kids painting and those kind of things saying thank you. Um, That's really interesting. Oftentimes, no, you're good. Oftentimes, as those requests come in, um, the incident management teams, the teams on these bigger fires, they try to redirect those people to the Red Cross or nonprofits, right? Because when we're on these big fires, the big fires, not necessarily all the little initial attacks, but you're pretty well logistically taken care of, right? So there's a there's an incident command post or and a camp that gets set up, and it's essentially it's like Burning Man. It's a city that just gets built in a parking lot, right? And there they feed you, and there's a medical tent to get ibuprofen, and there's a supply tent to to go get new gloves, right? And so you're pretty well taken care of, and so oftentimes on those big catastrophic ones like we have right now, right, Dixie those donations are much better served to go to those nonprofits like Red Cross and help with the people that are evacuated and may have lost everything. A couple of years ago, I can't, I can't remember the year, one of those camps was actually set up in the school's sports field down yep. the street from where I grew up. Just down the street from my parents' house, it was there were their engines from Colorado, New Mexico, yep. a couple from New York, um, and it was the entire block that my, I grew up on was just lined with engine crews. One of my more memorable fires, there's hundreds, but one of the more fun ones in retrospect, and this is a unique piece about the firefighting community, right, is oftentimes when you're the most miserable and broken, afterward you look back and those are the, the times that you laugh. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it's, and it's funny. Um, I, was re- I was on Hell Attack and we got flown into a fire up by Pyramid. I don't remember the name of it. And we spent, we flew up first thing in the morning and it was off doing its thing in the cheatgrass. And we spent the entire day just hotlining, 
right? And so hotlining is a term when you're like at the active part of the fire. You're not mopping up, you're not controlling the edge, but you're like actively suppressing trying to fight fire. And it's oftentimes the most physically arduous, but it's also the fun, right? You're in, you're in the excitement. Aircraft are dropping all around you and there's flames and you're mm-hmm. sweating. And we, so we did that all day. Um, from probably 8, 8.30 in the morning till I guess 5 or 6 at night. And we got picked up off the line. Um, most of us were pretty close to running out of water because on the helicopter you you travel light, right? Because mm-hmm. our program's main focus was initial, initial attack moving fast um, on those scenarios. And so we're flying back to... To the helibase, our, our support vehicles are instead uh, to resupply on water and MREs and stuff. And, but on the way there, we found we we spotted another smoke over in Story County somewhere. And so we turned to go there. Uh, obviously, it needed to, it needed some attention. It was starting to crown through the pinion juniper, right? And so we landed. We offload there. The helicopter takes off to give us bucket work. Um, He's, he goes, actually, he went back for fuel, um, and then we call in smoke jumpers. They're going to come in and help us because they're sitting instead. Smoke jumper plane comes over. They drop their guys and part of their gear, um, and then a thunder cell moves over. And so when a cell moves over, two things happen, right? One, oftentimes your fire blows out because of the wind events, right, the, the downdrafts that come out of it. And two, you lose your aircraft because they can't fly for the same reason. And so our helicopter couldn't come back. The jumper plane got sent back and, and landed. And we're still out of water. We're still out of MREs. Uh, we get drenched. There's lightning crashing all around us, probably two or three strikes within a quarter mile of us. The jumpers got blown around in the wind, so they're scattered out trying to figure out where everybody is. And... That was our night. We went to bed with no food, no water, <laughs> soaking wet, and in the middle of nowhere, in the rocks. Mm. And you go to bed thinking, like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> uh, but then, you know, after a week or two, you look at your buddy and you just chuckle about it, because that's part of the adventure. Dang. I would imagine yeah. that it was a really, like, bonding moment with your... your um colleagues right afterward not in the moment right because people are thirsty they're hungry they're cold they're wet they're grumpy yeah tempers start to get testy Mm -hmm. i remember having to call one of them out like because he was complaining about i don't remember what the water i think i had to tell him like complaining about it isn't helping anybody (laughs) shut up we'll get water in the morning yeah they'll drop you some water when they can right yeah but after the fact, yes, then it's bonding. But in the moment, it can be testy. And that's why those relationships are so strong. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. like you go through more with these people than you go with, like, your freaking spouse sometimes. Yep. <laughs> no, there's been numerous times, uh, myself and the crew, especially on the helicopter, just flown into the middle of nowhere, like I said, for three, four days. Here's, you know, 10 cases of MRE and a bunch of QBs. QBs are five-gallon boxes of water and some batteries, and we'll see you in a few days. Go stop the fire. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to the Living With Fire podcast. You can find more stories about wildfire and other resources at livingwithfire.com. The Living With Fire program is funded by the University of Nevada, Reno Extension, Nevada Division of Forestry, Bureau of Land Management, and the United States Forest Service. <laughs>